1: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. I have Nicole Hinton, uh, Associate Professor, Pacific Biosciences Research Center, uh, School of Ocean and Earth Science and Technology at University of Hawaii, Manoa. So, uh, Nicole, thank you for coming. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing well. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, if you don't mind, uh, tell me about your, your research and your interests.
2: Yeah, so I run a research lab at University of Hawaii. And we are primarily interested in fungi and uh, the interactions of fungi with other organisms and specifically their interactions with plants.
1: I know basically that, uh, I guess, well, bacteria, I guess, is supposed to do nitrogen fixation for plants. Um, What are the roles that fungi have of plants? How do they interact with them?
2: Well, if you open any basic biology textbook, there's probably about one paragraph in the 800 pages that's dedicated to the role of fungi with plants but it's actually a a really critical one so it's thought that when plants moved from an aqueous environment in prehistoric times to a terrestrial one that they were only able to do so because of a symbiotic interaction with fungi so you can imagine that living in water is pretty different from living in land And for a plant to make a living in water, it's going to require different capacities than on land. So it's been proposed that in order for plants to make this transition to gain the nutrients that they need in order to survive in soil, that they formed this uh, intimate interaction in their early roots with fungi. And these fungi had enzymatic capacities and physical capacities to seek out soil nutrients and then transfer these to these early land plants. And then this became a mutualism where in exchange for providing plants, these nutrients, the plants through photosynthesis were providing the fungi with carbon to complete their life cycles. So this is a a very old symbiosis. It's uh, thought to be about 500 million years old. And it's one that's basically led to the greening of the planet.
1: One hey, question here. I guess plants that are in water, you know, imagining them having to uh, take in carbon dioxide and also oxygen in the root system, I guess they're they're relying on the dissolved small fraction of CO2 and oxygen in water. So it seems like right. uh, it's just speculation that they would be like very slow growing. And uh, I don't know, They they would have to have a very different physiology in order to grow versus land plants.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty amazing leap to go from water to land, right? You're dealing with uh, dissolved nutrients and, like you say, uh, oxygen and CO2 that are suspended in water versus in the air and uh, nutrients in the soil on land. So, yeah, it's a a pretty major transition and one that plants wouldn't have been able to do without these uh, fungi, which are called mycorrhizal
1: fungi. I didn't even think about this, but was this coincident with... um animals transition to land or was it before or after I thought? I guess I, I don't know how plants mm. started. I just imagine they started on land and not in the water.
2: Yeah, uh plants I think figured it out before most of our contemporary animals that we think of. So they figured out how to do that transition. They're they're smart, mm. those plants, but only smart because of these symbionts that they've been able to uh form these partnerships with which are fungi and bacteria and other microorganisms
1: i guess if i think about it they would have had to have done it first because anything that became amphibious there would just be a barren rocky landscape if There there's no plants they had nothing to eat you know
2: yeah um, if you think you know, yeah, plants, other plants are often taken for granted because they uh, for most of us they surround us in our daily lives but uh, the base of any food chain on land, it starts with plants. So plants are our primary producers that are able to take things like atmospheric CO2 and water and turn those into actual biomass using light energy. So this is something that's unique about um, primary producers and, and plants. So, what so about basically, uh, we what? couldn't we couldn't have the life that we see today without our our plants at the base of our food chains. Hmm.
1: How do you imagine the relationship between plants and fungi started? You know, who who started it? Uh, is it some sort of co-evolution? Like, what, what's your imagination on it?
2: Um, what's my imagination on it? I mean, that's, that's a great question. One thing I can say is that from the fossil record, uh, we can see that not only are these associations between the roots of plants and fungi very old, but that they haven't really changed their form much over millions of years. So once this relationship was established um, and figured out for the benefit of both the fungi and the plants, uh, it, it basically honed in on, on a form and function that's carried through millions and millions of years of plant evolution and remains the most widely distributed symbiosis on Earth.
1: What does this symbiosis look like? Let's say I, um, I have a field and I
2: till it and get it
1: ready and I plant a bunch of seeds in it. Um, is there any fungi in the soil that approaches the plants and seeks out any new plant growth? Or do the, you know as the plants grow, they secrete chemicals that attract fungi? Like how does this relationship form?
2: Yeah, I and mean, that's a good question too. So just to back out a little bit and talk more generally about symbiosis, there's two broad categories. So one is a vertical transmission of symbionts. So what this means is that you inherit your necessary symbionts from your mother, from your parent. Um And then the other form is a horizontally transmitted symbiosis. So what this means is that the host and the symbionts are dispersing independent of each other. So in the case of plants and these root inhabiting mycorrhizal fungi, they fall into the latter category. So uh, plants and fungi complete their life cycles independent of one another. So plants are producing seeds, fungi are producing spores. They disperse into your garden or into a forest or into whatever landscape. And then at some point in time, Uh, They need to come into close contact with each other in order for that uh, chemical symbiotic recognition to ignite. And through these chemical cues of basically doing this little dance of are you friend or foe, eventually the physical interaction takes place where um, the very early ages of a seedling, so a very small seedling, becomes colonized in its roots. Uh, by these fungi and the um the portion of the fungus that's colonizing the roots is called the the hyphae or this is vegetative growth that's going into the roots of these plants to form this tight physiological connection
1: what about um bacteria again that do nitrogen fixation that will you know gather in nodules inside the plant roots you see a three-way interaction here with the fungi and the bacteria yeah and yeah the plants? that
2: that can happen. There, there's definitely plants that harbor both nitrogen-fixing bacteria and mycorrhizal fungi. And then there's been some really interesting um, recent research that's looking at the bacteria that obligately live inside these mycorrhizal fungi and actually help them metabolize certain forms of nutrients that they might be encountering in soils. So. Not only can you have these spatially structured uh, nitrogen fixing bacteria on one portion of a plant's roots with mycorrhizal fungi on another portion, but even inside these fungi, you have helper bacteria. So, you know, symbioses, again, if you go back to textbook examples, they're oftentimes broken down into these uh, two sided partnerships a host and a symbiont, but actually they're far more complex than that oftentimes involving a multitude of interactions, especially
1: when you're talking about microbial symbioses. Yes, yeah, so you can have multiple symbionts. You, know, like you could have, a, I guess, bacteria inside of a fungus, and the fungus, I guess, is a symbiont with the plants. And then there's other bacteria that are yeah. just symbionts with the plants. And I mean, there's all kinds of interactions.
2: Yeah, it's, <laughs> a, it's a complex and, and busy world out there. So part of our goals in and, and my lab is to basically untangle, you know, these interactions and then the role that they play in the success for plants and natural ecosystems, and then looking more specifically about how these interactions can change depending on the environmental context in which we find them.
1: So, you know, what are what are some of the specifics of your research then? What are you looking at? You know, what kinds of plants or what kinds of fungi?
2: Yeah, so as you might be aware, uh, Hawaii is renowned as a a great place to visit as a tourist and hang out on the beach and has a beautiful tropical climate, but it's also um, the extinction capital of the planet. So Hawaii has 25% of the species listed as um, federally endangered through the Endangered Species Act are are found here and actually nowhere else, so endemic to the Hawaiian Islands. In addition to that, we're known as the invasion capital of the world. So not only do we have many of our native species that are at risk, but we also face a lot of pressures from non-native species um, impacting our remaining native habitats. So it's kind of a a double whammy, and uh, much of the work that my lab is interested in is uh, how is it that plants become able to invade when they're introduced into new territories, and does this have something to do with their interaction with uh, microbial symbionts, and specifically with these mycorrhizal fungi? And then on the flip side of that, if we're interested in restoring native landscapes uh, with native plants and even some of our most endangered native plants, what role can these beneficial fungi play in helping with these restorations?
1: Well, you set up situations in your lab where you have native plants, you know, like a mini ecosystem and you have another plant that has invaded some part of the island, and you introduce it in the lab in this little controlled environment and see how it first takes, you know, effect and take samples and see what, what fungi start to, you know, populates and see it from the beginning. Have you been able to observe that?
2: Yeah, so we do some of these types of manipulative experiments that you're describing either in greenhouses or growth chambers where we can um, alter the community of fungi that plants are interacting with and we can choose native host plants versus invasive host plants and see um, how they either benefit or don't from particular communities of fungi. Um, A lot of our work, though, takes place actually in situ or in the field. Uh, So, for instance, one of our um, ongoing projects right now is working on the big island of Hawaii uh, on the slopes of the volcano Mauna Kea, where in the 1800s, large swaths of native forests were cleared and replaced with uh, non-native grasses for pasture, and they were heavily grazed. And grazing and conversion of land also coincided with uh, other invasions from things like ungulates, so feral pigs. And then in about 1987, it was decided that some of these pasture lands should be converted back into native forests in order to create more habitat for some of Hawaii's most threatened and endangered forest birds. Uh, that were getting hit really hard with a non-beneficial microbe in the form of avian malaria. Uh, So in order to convert pasture back to forest, it was decided that about 400,000 trees over about a 15-hectare area should be outplanted, and this was a single species of native tree. So that was a huge effort to, to outplant almost half a million trees. And then Following up with these efforts were additional uh, revegetations using other native uh, plant species. So what we have now is this patchwork of remnant pasture that's been abandoned, uh, these outplantings of native trees and then outplantings of native trees mixed in with other native species, and then some remnant forests. And the so issue what, yeah, is what's the your plant,
1: what's your goal here? What, what are you trying to accomplish? With so
2: them? yeah, so the issue is that well, they're trying to basically recreate a native forest. This has been going on for over twenty years, and these native plants haven't been regenerating on their own. So they've gotten very big. They produce seeds, uh, but you don't see seedlings. So what we were tasked with trying to figure out is, is there some limitation in the soil where these plants aren't encountering their necessary mycorrhizal fungi? And because of this, they're incapable of basically regenerating or increasing their population sizes. So in order to do this, this involved a really intensive field effort where we're sampling soil and sampling roots and then using Um, DNA sequencing technologies, we can identify the community of these mycorrhizal fungi that are inhabiting these restored forests, and we can compare those to the remnant forests. And basically, the take-home message was that we found, indeed, there seems to be some very strong limitations of um, these restored forests missing critical and keystone mycorrhizal species that are found in the remnant forest. So we suggest that basically, if you want to regrow a forest, you can't just plant trees. You need to also be thinking about these below ground interactions and the roles that they play
1: in long term forest succession. Well, why can't you culture the, the mycorrhizae and grow them, and then, you know, inoculate the soil when you're planting? You
2: know? Yeah, that's a good that's a good idea, and that's one that. Uh, when we work with land managers here in Hawaii, uh, after we've kind of done these cross comparisons of habitats, we can say, yes, if you're interested in basically setting up these more complex interactions that are going to support your uh, ecosystem services, like a forest should, uh, you should think about pre-inoculation with some of these native microbes. So that's been another big push in my lab is how is it that we can actually uh, use these microorganisms and specifically uh, fungi in restoration and conservation practices here in Hawaii and elsewhere. Well,
1: have you tried it? And you know, if you don't have it, what happens?
2: Yeah. So. Uh, then one just of never proclaimed so or I, what will happen? Yeah. So I, I told you now. I just told you about one of our field experiments, and so now I'll move and tell you one of our examples from. Uh, a more controlled experiment where we really wanted to see, you know, if plants are missing their microbiome or the fungi that inhabit the healthy parts of plants, leaves, roots, shoots, et cetera, uh, is this really having a strong impact on their health? So uh, in order to look at this, we used uh, a host plant, which is endemic and endangered, in Hawaii. It's a species of mint and it forms both a below and above ground associations with a whole suite of bacteria and fungi. Uh, one of the main things that's been leading to the decline of this species is it gets hit really hard with a foliar pathogen. So this is something that if you're a gardener, you may have seen before, it's a powdery mildew that can show up on things like cucumbers and tomatoes. And this powdery mildew is not native to Hawaii, but it was introduced at at some point in time. We don't know exactly when. Uh, But basically, this plant is having a hard time surviving in the face of this pathogen. So what we did uh, under controlled growth chamber conditions is we had sterile individuals of this plant, so they were grown in culture. And then we inoculated them either with their below ground mycorrhizal symbionts, and they're above-ground foliar symbionts. these are fungi that live on healthy leaves, or one or the other, or none. So that was a control. And uh, then we introduced to these plants the pathogen, and we followed the uh, increase in disease prevalence over time. And what we found is that basically the plants that had an intact microbiome Had much lower disease prevalence than these controls that had none. So um, it was about three times lower disease incidence, maybe even a bit more, uh, in these plants that had been inoculated relative to the controls. So um, the control plants were not looking good. (laughs) I can just say that they were pretty unhealthy, whereas These plants that had undergone these inoculations either above and below ground with beneficial fungi or both uh, survived and did quite well. So what I can also say, though, about this project is that the next steps would be to take these plants that survived and then put them back into the field conditions and see if having this probiotic or these pre-inoculations actually helps them in a more um, natural setting. That that isn't as controlled as our growth chamber, but so we we definitely feel encouraged by these types of results. But there there is not only a really strong role of these fungi uh, for benefiting plants, but it's one that can potentially be harnessed um, and, and used as a tool.
1: You said in in the, when they would replant an area that had been you know grassland, the plants would grow to adulthood, but then just not. You know, they would die from there? Or where was the stopping point? Or were they just not uh, growing so at all?
2: It's kind of the analogy that I used for that situation is it's kind of like planting a garden. So these uh, woody species, some trees, some shrubs uh, were outplanted as seedlings. And now they're over 20 years old. So some of them are, are, you know, pretty tall, getting 30, 40 feet tall. And they produce flowers and they produce fruit. Uh, and they produce seeds, but those seeds aren't sprouting. So for whatever reason, when a seed lands on the forest floor in these revegetated or reforested areas, uh, they're not they're not able to survive. And what we found is that part of that survivorship, for lack thereof, is owed to the loss of some of these key mycorrhizal symbionts.
1: So why not look at the uh, seedlings and try different? that are, you know, coincident with them or not and see, you know, which ones will grow and which ones won't. That seems to be like the, you know, you're looking at pathogens and stuff, but that seems a little bit away from the actual problem that's happening.
2: Yeah, yeah. So those are two separate projects. So, um, you know, you were asking about the the general efficacy of using fungi to protect plants. So that was the kind of controlled mm-hmm. experiment where we were fighting fighting good fungi against bad bad being the pathogen. Um, So in the context of the field experiment where what they're trying to do is regrow a forest, that would be, you know, a a good recommendation is basically to grow seedlings with these fungi that are found in the more intact remnant forests prior to doing any additional outplanting. And that is part of what we recommended in this case to the land managers for this wildlife preserve.
1: So, what do you think is the consequence for agricultural crops? You know, especially monoculture when they keep planting the same thing. Do you think it's a depletion not only yeah. of like nutrients in the soil, but also the mycorrhizae that are there in the soil too?
2: Yeah, I mean, so this is uh, a very active area of research for obvious reasons because food security is something that uh, is important to all of us. And because of the important role that mycorrhizal fungi can play in aiding plant success, there's a lot of interest in uh, how we might use these fungi to increase crop yields and uh, sustain our very limited uh, phosphorus resources and limit the need for um, fertilizers. So um, the answer is yes. <laughs> they matter, <laughs> and uh I guess if you want to get more nuanced about it, um the most recent findings that I've seen in the context of various agricultural settings is that there are site specific interactions between mycorrhizae and crop plants that really matter, so there's no as of today, and in general, I'll say as caveats, there's no single prescriptive. Mycorrhizal inoculum that is going to unilaterally um, increase yield while decreasing dependency on chemical fertilizers.
1: I don't think this would have been more studied than just uh, you know restoring natural landscape to an area. I don't think it would be heavily studied, but is it not, or, or is that not your area enough for you to know?
2: So, are you asking is studying agricultural lands not not studied?
1: Yeah, I would think that, that that would be one of the first places people would look to see the role of fungi, you know, in having oh, yeah, healthy yeah, crops yeah, and agricultural yeah. so, places.
2: So yeah, so as I was saying, you know, that is an area of super active research and it has been for for many years. It's not uh what my class group focuses on. So we work more in these natural ecosystems, uh, with native and invasive species. But yes, um the interactions between mycorrhizal fungi and crops and crop production, and thinking about how to use these fungi to limit our dependency on chemical fertilizers is a a very active area of research. And uh, I was just at a international mycorrhizal conference in Mexico where there was quite a bit of talk on um, ag systems. And the takeaway message that I got from these talks was that, uh, similar to our natural settings, there there's no one fungus that's going to to save the world. That uh, these interactions have evolved in specific places among specific fungi and specific hosts, and uh, we need to take a little bit more of a granular look at um, the benefits of various fungi from Different habitats in the context of ag settings, uh, rather than thinking about just trying to find a single um, single fungus or a single prescriptive uh, fungal inoculated fertilizer, which is sometimes called biofertilizer, uh, to use in all cases.
1: Well, what about the system you're looking at? Is, is what will one fungus do it, or need a whole bunch? You know, what does an inoculant <laughs> that's successful look like? What does it compose of?
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's a a good question. Uh, Do you need a diversity of fungi to support a diverse ecosystem like a forest, or can you just do it with one? Um, Well, I'll say in the context of native forests, generally what you find is a very high diversity of below-ground fungal symbionts. However, one example that shows you don't necessarily need this diversity to grow trees at least is some of the work that we're doing on tree invasions uh, where we have non-native conifers that are spreading rapidly into some of our national parks. Um, And these national parks are things like the Haleakala National Park, which is a a volcanic crater. So cinder cones, not pine forests. And it turns out that Pines are not only invasive here in Hawaii, but they're actually the the most invasive tree species um, in the southern hemisphere. So places like South America, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, uh, pines are very problematic invaders. And then more interestingly for our work and uh, for invasions in general is that the pine trees cannot survive in the absence of specific interactions with mycorrhizal fungi. And here in Hawaii, the fungi that these pines partner with are also non-native. So what we're looking at is basically a co-invasion of pine trees and their mycorrhizal symbionts. So
1: would,
2: in this case,
1: sorry? I would guess what happens is when a when a species successfully invades, that either co-ops or just forms a partnership with some kind of fungi that's locally there, maybe that's in small numbers, but you know, with the new species, that, that the reason why it successfully invades is it's able to partner with fungi, so it has, like, a, a dual advantage there. You know, they're they're protective of yeah, each so other, that, and that's why it's so successful.
2: That, so that's one pathway to invasion is basically co-opting existing symbionts. Uh, in the case of pine trees, that tends not to be the case, that they actually bring their symbionts along with them, or... At some point, their symbionts are introduced to the landscape, and this is what spurs their invasions. And you're asking about do, do we need diversity or not in order to form these healthy partnerships? And in the case of invasions, and specifically in pine invasions, the answer is no. Uh, that basically, these pine forests are able to expand and expand over. A fairly short period of time, 50 years or less, and very, very rapidly, uh, into um, intact native landscapes using just a handful of fungal
1: symbionts. Were they using more than one though? They're using multiple. Like you said, a handful.
2: Well. So this, again, is where it gets a little more nuanced. But basically what we found, and this has been followed up with studies elsewhere around the globe where pines are problematic invaders, is that the further you get from a pine plantation, so these are the purposefully planted uh, pine forests, the further you get where you're finding um, invading pines, the fewer symbionts they harbor. And interestingly, what we found is that these pines that are really getting out and infiltrating these native landscapes can actually harbor only a single mycorrhizal fungus, and it's the same fungus throughout the globe.
1: So this fungus
2: is a very good invader as well.
1: What, what do you mean? Is it the, at the heart of the invasion you'll see more diversity of fungi, and at the edges of it you'll see less? Essentially. Sure
2: Uh, Yeah, so the way that invasions generally work is that you have some purposeful introduction of a non-native species, or it can be a non-purposeful accidental introduction. But in the case of pine forests, these are forests that were planted in order to produce timber. So uh, these were purposefully planted, and then over time... The, um the pines regenerate and start to spread outside of these initial plantations. So what we find is that if you look inside the plantations, there's about half a dozen or so co-introduced mycorrhizal fungi. But if you look at these trees that are now spreading um, in our system, you know, upwards of a couple kilometers away from the plantations, they tend to harbor just as a, a a single or one or two mycorrhizal partners so the take-home message with this is that for trees to invade they don't need diversity comparable to what they experience either in a forest setting uh, in a plantation or a forest setting in their native habitat which would harbor even greater diversity than what we find in plantations below ground
1: Mm, okay i see they're adapting to their new environment they're still able to invade even though they, they don't have everything going for them that they have in their home environment?
2: Well, you know, we've talked a lot about host and plant interactions, but there's a whole other level of interactions that are going on below ground. So these are the interactions between these fungi. So um, these fungi are receiving carbon from their hosts, but they're also competing with one another for soil nutrients. And depending on how well they're able to access and transfer these nutrients to their host, there's then reciprocal rewards. So the fungi that are uh, providing the most benefit to their hosts are often those that are receiving the most benefit from those host plants. So in a forest setting, where there's high competition, it makes sense that you uh, would have this this greater diversity where you basically have fungi that are trying to um, not overlap in the pools of resources that they're chasing after. When you move outside of a plantation and there's less competition because you're entering a novel landscape, it makes sense that diversity isn't as important.
1: I got you. Are there any other players that people aren't aware of? Bacteria, fungi, any other... Things you found in the ground and soil uh, that are coincident, you seem to be looking more than most people. That's why I mean,
2: the, the closer we look at these interactions, like I was mentioning before, they, they're very rarely, if ever, just a, a two partner situation. And um, like I mentioned earlier, there's, there's pretty good evidence in most cases you have endosymbiotic bacteria. So those are bacteria that are living. Inside the healthy tissue of these fungi that are helping them uh, run their metabolism, and you know, I would not be surprised if, in addition to these bacteria, there's viruses and other microorganisms that are playing key roles in establishing the symbiosis.
1: Okay. Well, very good. What would be, um, you know, an achievement that you'd be really happy with in the next year or a couple of years? What are the milestones
2: you looking at mm. in the next year or couple of years the the main thing that we're really interested in now is that you know it's well established that these fungi are important in plant health, but what's less clear is that as environmental conditions change and as these uh, below ground microbial communities change. What repercussions does this have for supporting healthy hosts? So concurrent with that, if you have a ubiquitous mycorrhizal fungus across a landscape, uh, is it playing the same role for its host no matter where it exists? So these types of functional questions are the ones that we're really focused on getting at right now with the overall goal that if we can figure out what constitutes the healthiest microbiome for plants but then these can be used as tools for uh agriculture conservation etc
1: okay very good well, what's the best way for people to get in touch with the lab or you and ask questions or see papers that you put out
2: um the best way to get in touch would be just to go to our lab website which is hinson
1: lab Okay, very good. Wonderful. Thank you for coming. It's been an interesting podcast. I appreciate
0: you being here. All
2: right. Thanks much.
0: You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.